Hello, everyone. Uh, welcome back to Questions You Never Thought You Could Ask in Church, the uh, show that is the only podcast you need in your life. That's <laughs> how, how it's been described, <laughs> Andrew. I believe that's what the website says. I was like, wow, we, we think a lot of ourselves. Um, but this is a show where we uh, pepper Dave, Dave Gadini with all kinds of questions about theology, religion, uh, spirituality, probably not politics, maybe. Eh. We'll stay I would away love from that. to get into politics. <laughs> no, it's not allowed. <laughs> that is not the Come focus on. of the show. Cryptocurrency, anything <laughs> Cryptocurrency, you want. Yeah, right, right. Um, but yeah, if, if you have questions, coins. we can take your questions live here. Uh, go ahead and text them into 314. Oh, no, that's not right. 815-314-0363. And those come in anonymously, so uh, no, no shame in any questions you ask. Uh, we'll try to get to them either today or... We have an inbox of past questions that we'll hit. Yeah, it looks in, like they're heaping up shows. there, Andrew. Yeah, we've got quite the list going here. Yeah. All right. What do we got today? Um, I think uh, a I couple questions. Too many questions because now I don't really have any. Like I can't, I can't throw my thoughts and and rabbit holes in in here too much because <laughs> I'm getting forced out. I'm I'm being suffocated by all the questions. You're being suffocated by the questions. <laughs> yes. I don't like that. <laughs> anyway, go Steve, ahead. Andrew. Steve wants one question. <laughs> one question. The rest is all for, offshoot for 2021 and 2022. Right? We will yeah. look at one question for the entire and, year. Who has the best question? In 93 parts, who has the best question? All right, we can well, turn it into a competition. Who can get us to talk the longest about one, one question? question? Oh wow! Watch the stranglehold on the show right there. You know, I mean, just <laughs> yeah. put a noose hey, around. We have that a captive night. audience, so. <laughs> um. This these first couple kind of build off of what the last two episodes have been. We've been talking about salvation and the who, what, why, when, how, all those different things. Um, and I think these aren't anything we've discussed yet so far. Um, right, so, yeah, yeah. yeah, this first one is, does someone have to have deep faith in air quotes to receive salvation or is just hearing and believing enough to spend eternity with God? Hearing and believing is enough to spend eternity with God. God, of course, wants you to have deep faith and a deepening faith that grows ever deeper. But you are not saved by the quality of your faith. Too many Christians turn faith into a work of its own right. We've jettisoned all the other good works of God, but we make faith a work. Mm -hmm. And then we test the quality of that work, right? It's yeah. the wrong way to perceive it. Um, just receive it. Just receive it. Let God meet you there. In that process, the Spirit will do a work in you. He'll continue to draw you nearer to God. You can, of course, resist him in that journey. And uh, that's where you have a role to play in this. But uh, but no, nonetheless, I would. I, I talk to a lot of Christians here um, who, who really find themselves in places of fear and uncertainty because of this question and related ones. Am I, have I truly surrendered? Do I really believe? Am I sincere enough? It's all related to the same thing. Um, I, I assure you, your faith is not nearly as deep as God would like it to be. But God loves you despite that. And he rescues you despite that. And he invites you to spend eternity with him despite that. So take heart in that. Not as an excuse to avoid deep faith, but certainly as a, uh, a point of empowerment, I guess you can say, um, of joy. Uh, may be renewed over a fearful relationship of God scrutinizing the quality of every aspect of your belief. Yeah. Great question. Wouldn't it be interesting if there was like the, you know, the, the thermometer of like where you're at, you know, finance, like if there's a fundraiser, you know, and it goes up and you're almost to a certain point And, and I think a lot of us would love it sometimes just for the reassurance, because we do have a lot of self doubt to say, Oh, my, I'm almost there, guys. You know, my faith yeah. is almost as like, deep as it where it needs to be. I got know? like a Milwaukee drill, and you know, and the power pack has that like button you can push <laughs> yeah. to see how many power meters <laughs> are on yeah, it, yeah, you know? Yeah. And uh, just out of curiosity, you know, press the button. And you know, though, Steve, that's actually not a new idea, and that was actually explored in the uh, the late Middle Ages and early Renaissance. I mean, this was a, a you know, a time in Western history when the quest to measure everything was really kind of birthing into societal realm. I mean, you got to remember this is an era where they didn't really even have clocks. Um, they didn't have thermometers. They didn't have all these things that we take for granted. They didn't have double book, uh, you know, double column accounting, you know, any of these were all inventions that came out. And as they were discovering more and more about the natural world and in ways that we can start measuring natural phenomena, of course, the questions also came up on how that relates to the spiritual life as well. 
And there were actually various attempts. And, and I don't know what the experimentation was on this. Right. I'd love to kind of look into right. it more. But how can we measure the amount of grace in someone? Mm. So, uh, yeah, fascinating concept. Stuff, but, yeah. uh, mm. you know, I, I don't know how you do better than Jesus. Just, you know, you know him by the fruit. Right? That reminds me yeah. of uh, Monty Python where they're trying to determine if, it, if she's a witch or not. <laughs> <laughs> was that Holy Grail? Or was that a, yeah, I yeah. think that's Holy Grail. Okay, so let's go here. We have in, in Catholicism, right? You have people who they have a loved one who passes mm -hmm. and then they get into, well, you know, I, I don't know that they're saved. I didn't know that. So then they get into this purchasing of masses. So explain that a little bit. Yeah, and let me, uh, let me correct that statement okay. a little bit more because in Catholicism, anyone who goes to purgatory will eventually go to heaven. If you are hellbound, you do not go to purgatory in Catholic lines of thinking. Mm. So it isn't really, they wouldn't frame it so much as they're not saved. No, you are saved. You're just not enjoying the fullness of the presence of God in heaven or what they'll often call the beatific vision, which means seeing God face to face. And so, yes, purgatory in Catholic thinking becomes a place to, well, be purged. That's what the term means, purgatory, purgation, mm -hmm. if I can put it that way. Purging the, uh, the imperfections in you, the, in, the, the inequalities in you. And uh, the difficulty within Catholicism, of course, with that, and, and this would be self-admitted, is no one really knows how much imperfection there is within you that needs to be purged. So how much time you would therefore have to spend in purgatory is an ultimately unmeasurable thing another one another one and, that's not measurable yeah right. with rare exception of someone being sainted or something like that which rarely happens in someone's lifetime though i suppose uh i'm not an expert on this enough but i suppose it could um i don't know that firsthand but but regardless putting that aside um and, and that's why there's constantly this this quest within catholicism to take the sacraments because the sacraments are how you receive grace and of course you want to get more and more grace and saying the masses to give indulgence to someone and, and indulgence being, of course, God will indulge in extra grace or, or mercy and expedite the purgation process, mm -hmm. if you will. Mm -hmm. um, but how much do you have to buy? How bad are you? It, it's, it's, really a, it's, it's really something I don't think anyone can accurately measure. And certainly I think we become very, um, we have very deceptive hearts. And I think it's very easy to rationalize or, or, or overestimate how good we are compared to, I think, what we will be like standing before God's throne. But yeah, that does create, I think, a, a, a strain of uncertainty yeah. within Roman Catholicism because of that. Right. And then it, it leads me to, well, so are you saying that Jesus wasn't enough? So the blood of, of Christ on the cross wasn't enough. We have to go the extra step, to, to which is, again, works works-based. Um, so where does that, <laughs> far be it from me to defend the Catholic line of thinking. And I love my Catholic <laughs> you, brothers and sisters in Christ. Today, yeah, I know I'm giving <laughs> arguments here. You, down, you know, I mean, you were speaking like a true <laughs> Protestant here. Steve. Uh, okay. But, um, correct me. Like where, where am I, where am I going wrong here? Because I want to be fair yeah. to the, the, the Catholic theological system. Yeah, and we're system. not trying to bash it. No, not at all. But, but I mean, these are important divides right. and important discussions. And I think iron can sharpen iron sure. here. Let me, let me phrase the question back to you like this. And I'm going to okay. play devil's advocate. Steve, I bet that you would say Christ is enough for your sins. And Andrew, I bet you would say the same. Christ is enough or more than enough for your sins. And yet at the same time, I bet both of you would sit here today and say, you are not wholly perfected yet. Correct. Or wholly sanctified yet. Right. Yeah. Well, you and I both know that the Christian journey is a process where God and the work of his spirit is continually leading us to a holier state, even though God has already declared us righteous and holy. So there's the declarative or what they call forensic statement, you know, the, the guilty, not guilty statement that God makes, regardless of your true actual being, but then the process of actually transforming or renewing you. So what Catholicism is seeking to do with grace through the sacraments is precisely what we're talking about. And I bet we'd also both agree that to stand before God in heaven, one needs to be righteous or holy. 
Well, the Protestant assumption is that after you die, that that takes place, you know, in the twinkle of an eye or in an instant. Mm. Um, the Catholic assumption is just simply that it continues to be a process until Christ comes again, where that is um, worked through in time, mm-hmm. so to speak. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I have more questions, but, you know, I feel like I'm, I'm kind of hogging the mic. Is it true? <laughs> Okay. It's only been 10 minutes. Text it. It's only been 10 minutes. Yeah, right. <laughs> These are the things that just go through my mind, you know? Yeah. yeah I mean, it's... No, this is the great stuff. I love thinking about this stuff. Yeah, well, absolutely. And I think it, it kind of, not necessarily along the lines of Catholicism, but the idea of confession within the Catholic Church is... I might be messing this up completely, but it, I mean, it's a way to try and um, quantify how how much grace you need essentially. I mean, it, it's a checks and balance system and personal accountability, but there's also the assignment afterwards of, you know, do this. So more specifically penance. Yes, yes. That's the way yeah, what they call penance. <laughs> and, and yeah, in many ways, that's part of, of the Catholic system of thinking and, and progressing you towards holiness and showing contrition and devotion to God and working through the sin that still is rooted in your life as opposed to just, flippantly dismissing it. Yeah. Which I think is a great thing to do as long as you're not using that to qualify your salvation. Exactly. Exactly. I think that's kind of where the lines can get blurred sometimes and not even just among the Catholic denomination, but among all Christian denominations. Okay. I confess this and I receive forgiveness, but did I? But there's that. Thanks for the lead into the my next question. I just knew where you wanted I, I to know. go. That's yeah. great. You guys are like one We're mind, on collective page. mind, yeah. <laughs> collective wow. hive kind of over here. Really mind. Good. Yeah. Dave, never mind. You just go get a sandwich, will you? Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no. So going to like the the confession piece, the do we abs- do we actually have to confess these the and, and I know it's. Okay, so let's let let me let me go this direction. Probably good practice. You know, no so, one so is that, going to deny so that we're confession being a good practice. Correct. But is it necessary? That's my question. So Jesus died all for for all sins, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So therefore, I'm going to assume that he died for my past sins and my future sins that I will commit down the road because. He's eternity. He he's forever, right? So therefore, why do I if he if he's already died for those sins, then then why am I am I forgiven of those? Or do I have to ask for forgiveness to be for, forgiven? You know, I spent uh, about a year of my life in torment as an OCD, high anxiety kind of person in early high school because I got caught into a trap, a mental trap of thinking that my salvation was dependent on repentance. And when an OCD-oriented kind of person like myself falls into that trap, I literally found what it meant to pray 24 hours a day because, you know, what if you have an aneurysm? What, what if you just drop over? What if you leave something un, uh, uh, unthought of or, or right. forgotten? Right. And, 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 and almost in this, this, this mantra-like state of, of just going, oh, Lord, forgive me. Lord, I don't even know what my sins are. Or if you still felt the guilt, well, it must still be upon me because I'm gauging my spiritual state by my feelings. Very dangerous thing to do. God, forgive me. God, forgive me. And I, and I was caught in a place of torment and uncertainty because of that. And to, to I think, the greater point here, Steve, um, <laughs> the greater act of faith for me, and that was actually trusting in the merits of Christ rather than trusting in the merits of myself and my act of contr- uh, contrition and confession. Mm-hmm. So there, there's a lot packed into this term here. And, and I think we got to define what we mean by confession. And what I'm hearing, Steve, is, is the very narrow sense of how we think about it in terms of saying sorry for our sins before God or before a Christian leader, be that a priest in the confessional or be that before a congregation in a confession absolution kind of um, ritual or rite that often happens in liturgical churches or things like that. And the way you phrased it was, is it necessary? Mm -hmm. And I have to ask, is it necessary for what? And here's why, and I'm not playing with your words because it's it's similar to baptism. Is baptism necessary? Mm -hmm. Well, is it necessary for what? I would argue that it's necessary in the sense that Christ wants you to do it. And so if he says, do this, we got to do it, right? But if you're saying, is it necessary for salvation? Meaning if I don't 
go to the confessional, if I don't say confession absolution, if I die with some unconfessed sin on my heart, does that mean I'm hellbound? Well, no, no, not at all. Christ's, Christ's grace is enough and more than enough for sins left unconfessed. Now, it's a very dangerous thing to persist in unconfessed sins because of the effect that it has on the hardening of your heart, but it doesn't de facto disqualify you from heaven or, or a relationship with God or the kingdom of God. It's, it's, it's a lot, I think, more akin to um, someone in a marriage who is continually treating their spouse in, in a harsh or harmful way and, and, and is obstinate in that. Eventually, that is going to erode the marriage, and eventually, it is going to destroy the marriage. And eventually, if we persist in sin, it will do the same to ourselves with God. But again, no one knows where that line is. And I think it has more to do with the hardening of our heart than God ever casting us off. Mm. Um, so, so how's that? But I go narrow because in the broader sense to confess is so much more than just saying, Jesus, I'm sorry. It's actually making a statement of faith and belief of who he is. And, you know, Romans 10, 9 will say, if anyone confesses with their mouth that Jesus is Lord and believes in his heart that God raised him from the dead, he will be saved. So in that sense of confession, well, certainly it's a very powerful thing that we're invited to, to be a, a sign of certainty and assurance in what God's promised us. Yeah. I think the, the direction that I was coming from at this with was <clears throat> for any of our listeners that maybe, maybe don't know who Jesus quite fully yet, you know, yeah. um, and they're somewhat new to, to the faith. And so what I don't want them to have happen is for them to overthink this because it's not about what you do. It, it's mm -hmm. been, it's a gift given to you. And so I don't want them to want that to be a stumbling block for them. You know, as you get deeper and you just read or uh, quoted Romans, um, and I think that's great um, if they're there yet, if they've even read Romans, you know, for that to even be relevant to them. Well, and regardless if they read Romans, but just to come face to face with this simple statement of God, right? which is, do you want to be saved? Mm -hmm. You know, confess my son, Jesus, as your Lord. Believe that he is who he says he is, that God has raised him from the dead, right? You will be saved. Uh, you know, the way this relates to faith is this is the way the reformers, the 16th century reformers classically put it, is that faith is the hand that receives God's gift of salvation. I mean, it would be ridiculous if I was to give you a gift and then you reached your hand out and took it. And then you were to start saying, I'm saved because look at what I did. Uh, that's yeah. a, it's just the goofiest thing, right? Right. right. Um, no, no, you're just opening yourself. You're saying, thank you. You're, you're, you're being receptive to it. You're yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I think part of this is too, is that we, you know, here we are in McHenry, Illinois, right. And a lot of our listenership is not. Yeah. National and global. And, right. Exactly. And so I think back to our friend Ramit and mm -hmm. about, he's always on my mind. I've been praying for him. Like God, get a hold of him. You know? Yeah. And Ramit, if you are even listening today, I mean, we just so appreciate that you've, you know, you've interacted with the show and, uh, and we hope that you continue to explore this. Yeah. But I guess where I'm going with that is, is I just don't want to assume, and I don't think any of us are that, that all of us are Christian listening to this show, you know, no, and, and that we're all on some level. Yeah. So for our brothers and sisters in Christ or not in Christ yet around the globe, it's like, no, I, I, I don't want to assume, you yeah. know, that you know any of this. So, and I think that's a good time to break in here and just kind of say the spirit of this show is that, you know, Steve, Andrew, and I are Christians. We all work um, on the same church staff, Fellowship of Faith in McHenry, Illinois, um, and, and we are Christian. But uh, even the nature of our very church is it's filled with people who are interested in God, asking questions about God, um, but aren't sure if they're Christian or don't consider themselves Christian. Many who probably don't even want to be Christian, and yet they're spiritually hungry or curious. And, and we want to let you know that we just welcome the dialogue here today, the questions that you're asking We'll try to um, address them as honestly and forthrightly um, and, and straightforwardly as we can, right? Questions on God, life, theology, the Bible, Christianity, how it intersects with you. Um, yeah. Text yeah. them in to 815-314-0363. Again, 815-314-0363. Or you can post them on a Facebook, either at 216 The Net or at Fellowship of Faith's Facebook page. It's just Fellowship of Faith. It'll search right up. And uh, yeah. Yeah, Gene uh, D'Amato. Gene, hey, Gene. Um, can I read that or is that hidden? 
You, yeah, you see it right there. there Can you read it yeah. then from there, We Steve? repent enough to be forgiven, but do we surrender enough to be changed? <laughs> it's a great question, yeah. Gene. Thanks for listening. Hey, and a uh, uh, big shout out to Gene. Happy birthday, first yep. of all. I think Gene yep. had a, a birthday just yesterday, uh-huh. um, if I'm not mistaken. And uh, way to go, brother. Yeah. And uh, it was great spending some time with you last yeah. week. Such a good guy. Yeah. But yeah, um, to your question, Gene, and uh, it just pulled off the screen. I was going to look at it one more time to make sure I'm capturing it correctly. Uh, Ken, can you pop it up there? Thank you. Um, We repent enough to be forgiven, but do we surrender enough to be changed? Mm -hmm. Um, I I think it's a really insightful rhetorical question there because I think often we don't surrender enough to be changed. Of course, what uh, Gene is alluding to here is the idea that our will constantly comes up against God's will. Um, and in those times, we have a choice to make. Do we obstinately go our own way? Do we just dismiss God? Do we ignore God? Do we um, uh, shout him down to his face? Or do we put God's will above our will and, quote, surrender to his will and way? And, yeah, I would argue the more that we surrender to God's will and way, the more uh, the more the Holy Spirit, I think, is free to to transform and change us. So constantly that call. All right. Great question. What else you got? Oh, let's see here. Um, If God foresaw man's sin and knew that it would disappoint him, why did he create man? Is he a glutton for punishment? (laughs) (laughs) I love that. (laughs) Is God a glutton for, for, for punishment? Yeah, I think God is a glutton for punishment. I don't know if he would put it that way, but you see the amount of abuse that God willingly takes upon himself, um, absorbs for the sake of others who don't deserve it. Um, geez, I mean, who who does that? I mean, <laughs> Christ, of course, is the greatest example of that on the cross. But if God foresaw man's sin, like, why did he do it? I think a lot of people wrestle with that. Um, I, I'm going to throw the question back to the listener today. If you foresaw that your kids would die, why would you have them? Because there's something greater in having them despite the pain and punishment that you have to endure, the suffering you have to endure. And, uh, you know, Steve, you know, as a parent, of course, Kent, you know, as a parent, I mean, uh, the life of parenting is filled with suffering. Um, it kind of, you have to be a glutton for punishment a little bit to have kids because you basically sacrifice your life and you put up with a lot and, and, and you absorb a lot of worry and fear and, 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 and have to go through a lot. And, and sacrifice a lot of yourself that you otherwise wouldn't have to. But you do it because there's greater joy in having those kids. We don't always say that in every moment, right? But but, every, but, but, no. But, no. but generally speaking, and, you know, God, I, I think, has found that the greatest thing in life is not the avoidance of pain. God chose in his foreknowledge to go through this even at the self-inflicted pain or the... Uh, the human inflicted pain, even that he would have to absorb, but did it anyway because of the love and the joy he has, not only for creation itself in the process, but for his creation. Mm. Yeah. So we have another, a a friend of ours um, from Nebraska, Brent. Brent, hey, buddy. Um, This is really good. And I think, Dave, can you, you want me to read it? You want to read it? You know, it's right here in front of me. It just popped up. And thanks for popping in here, Brent. Let me read this for our listeners today. Like Gene mentioned, dot, 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 something similar. If I believe, repent, try my best to turn. You know, we're getting the idea here, right? Aren't all those things I do? We do things in response to God's gift to us, but I think we also do them so we don't go to hell. Seems like a constant battle of us taking the wheel and us giving up the wheel to God. Can you speak to that? Mm -hmm. Yes, I can. And Brent, if you don't realize this fully, you are touching on what is actually a very deep and existential theological question (laughs) about God's role in salvation versus our role in salvation. And more specifically, what role do we have to play in our salvation? And this is actually a very nuanced question, depending on what faith tradition within Christianity you belong to. And I kind of want to put a spectrum out here, or maybe a paradox of, of, of three different things. But here's the spectrum that I want to set first, which sets up the two things. The idea of what is called grace alone. And I'm speaking very much from a Protestant standpoint, but certainly from a Catholic standpoint too, that we are saved solely because of God's grace, that without God's grace, none of us would be saved. We are completely dependent on God's grace for our salvation. 
Okay. Then at the other end of the spectrum is what is called universal salvation or grace for all, if I can put it that way, meaning God's grace is available to everyone. God gives it to all people, right? And yet the paradox is Jesus is very clear that not all will be saved. So how can it be grace alone with grace for all if not all are saved? Are are, are you seeing the mind trap here? (laughs) And most of Christian theology, believe it or not, at its root is very paradoxical, rooted in the mystery of God. And sometimes people mistakenly see these as contradictions. And I think that's an unfair way to view it. And I can go deeper down this rabbit hole as to why, if you'd like. Because what the Christian faith has always tried to do is take the teachings of Jesus and the prophets who went before them and not dilute them or water them down, but rather choose to hold them in tension with each other, even if the the root underlying unified cause can't be discovered by what God has revealed. Maybe to speak by analogy, we see a lot of tips of icebergs sticking up above the surface, which are the revealed truths of God. But sometimes how it connects beneath the surface remains a bit of a mystery. But we never want to deny the iceberg peaks that are sticking up, right? Mm -hmm. So, Brent, how does this relate to your question? Well, at one hand, let's go to one extreme, and we're going to call this the Calvinist extreme. All right, which will say you are saved by grace alone. You can contribute nothing and not even a faith is of you or or your faith or repentance is a work of you. That too is a gift of God. Therefore, the only way for this to make sense is that God would have had to elect you or predestine you before the foundation and creation of the world and then foreknew to give you faith or orchestrate things to get you faith. So the whole thing was foreordained by God to bring you there. So even your faith, you couldn't claim as your own. It's not your own. Right. right? Yeah. And what this theological system is trying to do, among other things, is protect the absolute by grace alone doctrine. Right? You would take someone more on the Catholic perspective, or, or I think a lot of... um. Um, evangelical movements today are very similar here, even though they practice it differently. Certainly, um, Calvin's counterpoint, a a Christian teacher and leader called Arminius, um, or Arminianism, as you might hear about it, who would go the other way. And he would say, no, no, God's grace is available for all people, right? So the only logical way to understand why some might not have it is because they did not act on it or respond to it of their own volition in some kind of way. So, so there is some little point where you would go, yeah, Brent, well, you, you have to believe, repent, surrender. And, and you can see how these two are held in tension in, in both the merits of either, but also the potential pitfalls of either. One of the best ways that I've ever seen this explained was by a New Testament scholar. His name is James Veltz. And he wrote a journal article, I think back around 2000, called Newton and Einstein at the foot of the cross. Mm. All right. Mm. And uh, <laughs> sounds like fun. an adventure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely brilliant article. And let me just kind of unpack it for you a little bit. In contemporary physics today, and by contemporary physics, I mean the past hundred years, right? There have been the mashing together of two schools of thought. There is what you would call Newtonian physics. All right. And this is much of what our like world and engineering is built on. It's the idea that, uh, you know, you know it for every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. There's predictability to the universe. You can, you know, see, see, see lines of cause and effect and always trace lines of cause and effect uh, uh, back and, you know, things of this nature. Okay. You can Google this stuff and get into it more on your own. Einsteinian physics comes along and now we have the theory of relativity and what it does between, you know, anyone from Einstein to Heisenberg, to, you know, we can start like kind of lining these guys up is they're starting to look at both supergalactic and subatomic physics, mm. which seems to behave very differently, right? Than the Newtonian view of the world, which is more of our, our observable five senses. When you start to get down to the subatomic level, you start to find that these, these, these quirks and these neutrinos and all these subatomic particles, they don't seem to act predictably. 
you see things like light, which has both the, the characteristics of wave and a particle at the exact same time. There doesn't, uh, objects seem to be in two places at the same time. It, it's defying everything you know about observable physics, and yet both seem to be true. And what it comes down to is perspective. Because both Newtonian and Einsteinian physics, as far as any scientific theory can be true, fully true, are true. But you have to choose which one is valuable to your point of view. Because if an engineer was building a bridge, you don't want him coming at it with an Einsteinian perspective going, well, there's nothing predictable here and we don't know how to kind of measure this. So we're just going to kind of know that at the subatomic particle, this thing might not be here tomorrow or something like that. Because I mean, you know, it doesn't make sense, right? You have to approach it from a Newtonian point of view. But if you're looking at subatomic physics, it doesn't make sense to approach it with, with, with strict Newtonian definitions. All right. Now, I invite our physicists out there to kind of clarify and challenge some of this. <laughs> I'm using an analogy from a theologian. OK, but I think it works for the lay scientist among us. Theology is the exact same way. There are things that are talked about from God's point of view. And things in the Bible, or from Jesus, you know, for that matter, that are talked about from our point of view. And I think a lot of what this free will predestination discussion comes down to, which Brent is hitting on here, um, actually can be described by perspective better than which is right or which is wrong. Because from God's point of view, he knows all things. So he knows who's going to be saved and who isn't going to be saved. He did elect you before the foundation of the world. He has been at work in your life and knew you, as the psalmist will say, before your mother even conceived you. So at some level, we can talk about things from God's perspective, about how he planned this, knows you, sees your end, and sees your future. And that's only helpful if we're talking about things from God's perspective. But when you come about talking about something from a human perspective, if someone comes to Paul and goes, what must I do to be saved? He doesn't come back and go, well, you know, the Lord knows all things. So he fundamentally knows. I mean, that's stupid. No, someone's just like, what do I do? Right? Right. Yeah. yeah. Repent and believe. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Believe and be baptized. These are all different ways that the apostles will put it. Right? Don't overthink it past that. Now, if you want to start getting into theological substructure, we can play there. But here's how I like the perspectival kind of approach. Because if someone is just sitting here simply going, I really want to become a follower of Jesus. What do I do? Here's the answer. Newtonian physics all the way. Just follow him. Just start following him. Just start doing the things he calls you to do. Just start being obedient to him right? Certainly put your faith and your trust in him and grow in that day by day and certainly repent of your sins and confess them and throw yourselves on his mercy and stop parsing whether it's of your power or God's power and how the twain shall meet, right? But if you're sitting here today with an existential crisis of going, have I really been devoted enough? Am I really sincere enough? Well, let me take you to it from God's point of view then because God's point of view always gives us these promises that transcend our fears, Right? And it's to that person that I want to say, God's got you, brother. God's got you. He's not letting go, right? You have been called by him. And so take heart in that. Yeah. yeah. Make sense? Yep. And by the it's way. It's a great you, question, Brent. And I thank you for Brent. asking. You've met Brent before. Have I met Brent yeah. before? Yeah. When, when, our, when our courtship began, you and yeah, I. Yeah. Yeah. We had a good courtship, Steve. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, it started down in uh, <laughs> Louisiana, Back in, yeah, or was it San Antonio? Where did where did we where did we when we did that the was, low party? That was New Orleans. New Orleans. Yeah, that was New Orleans. Yeah, yeah. Brent yeah. played plays bass. Yeah, back in what was that? 2016, 2017. Uh, I don't even know. It starts to all blend together. Yeah, yeah, right. But Brent will be coming to FOF uh, to play play some bass with us. That's all right, so there. listeners, come and uh, come and meet the great Brent. You yeah. know, who's going to be playing bass at Fellowship of Faith here in McHenry, Illinois. Fantastic. I love this guy. Like we've been in so many studies together. Uh, when, when we were in Nebraska and like to be able to walk with as my brother in Christ, I, I, he's just a phenomenal guy. Yeah. Like a, the heart of Christ and, and is not ashamed to tell you about it. Yeah. So good guy. All right. Way to go. Love Brent. you, buddy. Love you. All right. What else we got okay, here in we the inbox? A, a complete and utter change of subject. Fantastic. <laughs> Let's have it. Uh, this person said, my son asked why God created bugs. 
especially the irritating ones like mosquitoes and spiders. <laughs> I love it. Why did God create bugs, especially the irritating ones like mosquitoes? What was it? Spiders mosquitoes and mosquitoes? Mosquitoes and spiders. Who is not Which I agree with. Question, yeah. Right? You know, it's, it's, it's uh, the same answer to what, why God has made someone as irritating as you. <laughs> right? Yeah. I, I mean, uh, we, we often see various creatures as worthless. Right? God doesn't. Uh, some people see other people as worthless. God doesn't. Isn't it amazing that God actually loves mosquitoes and spiders, that God has a purpose for mosquitoes and spiders, that God, and I'm pushing the metaphor too far, maybe when I quote Jesus on this, but Jesus will talk about how God much loves, how God, how much God loves people. And I'll point to two things, the sparrows of the field and the lilies, uh, the sparrows of the air and the lilies of the field. All right. And he goes, look at how much God cares for birds which, you know, are, are two cents for a dozen. Look at how much God cares for the very flowers of the field and how they, they radiate in their splendor and array. Um, uh, and, and they're here today and tomorrow thrown, thrown in the fire. How much more will God care from you? God loves wondrous variety. God loves his creation. And I want to challenge you. It's a great question, but I want to challenge you to not dismiss is worthless something that simply bothers you or annoys you. So do you kill them? Do I kill what? Spiders, Spiders. and mosquitoes. Do I kill mosquitoes sometimes? Mm. Um, you know, had, I'm actually going to turn like it. A pet spider in your house, haven't you? You know, we. I, I don't actually like killing spiders. <laughs> I, I I like spiders, and like if I see them in the house, they're bug catchers for us. I'll yeah. keep them. But we had this one spider that took up like like mid nest, you know, or something. Big sucker too. Um, by our computer printer and like we'd open this door like to this this cabinet we have and there we'd be we named him mr norris eventually <laughs> and we'd go and we'd say hi to mr norris well after several months mr norris died and yeah oh, well no. welcome to this freak job show that we call questions you never ask <laughs> you can ask in church funeral but he died like no 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 he died right before um um like thanksgiving and so we were busting out Christmas deco and, and Tina has like this little nativity scene, like these little figurines and stuff. So, so Mr. Norris had to make it into the nativity scene that oh. year. And he, this dead spider all curled up was, you know, part of the manger scene that it was pretty cool. That is a, a yeah. Christmas thing too. Like the gold spiders people put on the <laughs> is it really? tree. Yeah. It's, all right. there, it's some sort of tradition. So did, all right. Did, if you know about that tradition, let us know because that's a new one. I, to me. I feel like I made one in, like second grade it was probably horrible but there was a story behind it <laughs> so does, does tina have aquanet at home you know like when when you give her flowers which i'm sure you do all the time every day yeah every day i'm sure she sprays those just to <laughs> every them. day i have a funeral <laughs> uh and she sprays those roses with you know the aquanet did you do that to to norris mr norris no no we should have yeah, that's a good idea but you know him. but i mean it's not 1982 so we haven't had aquanet in the house for 40 years here steve so. <laughs> oh now it's called big sexy hair yeah is that that's what it's called what it all right it all right basically sexy. aquanet version you have 3. a lot of experience 0. with I that do. steve <laughs> uh, is that we, what you're supposed to do to roses is spray them with aquanet yeah 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 i mean then they get, get like dusty and they look gross and yeah don't all do right. it don't do it. <laughs> all right just go buy some new I flowers. Put my flowers under a protective jar <laughs> we don't kill bugs in our house yeah how come what? because they're god's creation they're god's creation and who am i I mean, don't get me wrong. I do. If the thing's eating me, I'm going to smack it. Mosquitoes, I kill. <laughs> Spiders, though, I don't. We actually rescue them. And my daughter will, you know, she'll have one in her in her bedroom. She's like, I need you to come get something. So I'm like, yeah. okay. So then Dad I grab, comes and I saves grab the day. a cup. Very brave, Steve. I grab a piece yeah. of paper, you know, and then slide it over there. And then we were catch and release right yeah. outside. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. I kill them all. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There's a spider in my house. It's not supposed to be there. I think that's, <laughs> how, I, that's how Jeffrey Dahmer started out. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> if the spider is bigger than my hand, then yeah. I won't kill it. Right. I'll, I'll take it outside. But. <laughs> all right. What do we got next? Uh, let's talk about books of the Bible. Books of the Bible. Uh, Here we go. What do we got? Of the 27 New Testament books, 13 or 14 are traditionally attributed to Paul. With that said, are Christians really Paulians? Are Christians really Paulians? So, yeah, let me break it down for those listeners who uh, aren't following the question or are unfamiliar with the Bible. The Bible is basically divided into two major sections, which are called the Old Testament and New Testament. The divide line is pretty much before Jesus. And then I can't say during Jesus because the New Testament actually does start before his birth, but shortly before. Um, needless to say, it, first of all, I, I want to comment that it's an unfortunate terminology, old and new. 
because you know, we hear old, we think obsolete. Mm-hmm. And that really isn't a good way to think about it. I, I, I tend to like the term First Testament and Second Testament better. Um, regardless, that's not what this question is about. Within the New Testament, 27 books, like you said, and that's agreed upon by all Christians, right? And uh, 13 of them are from Paul, maybe 14 if you count Hebrews, but no one really thinks that's from Paul. It isn't attributed to Paul. There isn't any kind of you know statement that it's coming from Paul. So uh, since King James, no one really goes that way. So let's say 13. Are Christians really Paulian? Well, it, 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 it's it's fascinating. And let me kind of round it out by asking similar questions. Are, are Lutherans really Lutheran, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Are Presbyterians really Cal- Calvinian, right? I was going to say Calvinist, but Calvinian. Let's go with that. Are Catholics really Papists? Um, there certainly is a danger for all of that um, to happen where we can start becoming worshipers of Paul or Luther or Kelvin or or the magisterial tradition of, of the Catholic Church or whatever it might be um, over Christ. But, but that certainly would not be Paul's intention. It's certainly not the two t- New Testament's intention. Um, I, I would just like to simply say this. So, some people like to get this, what I call like purist mentality that we just got to get back to the beginning. We just got to get back to Jesus. And let's just see what Jesus said. Well, I guarantee you um, so much of your faith and thinking on any topic goes far beyond the founder, right? And hopefully it's never in the case of Christianity because you are trying to supersede Christ by Paul. That would be the worst of errors. But Paul was there to point people to Christ. And if you spend more than three minutes in his letter, you're going to see that what he does top to bottom is point people to Christ. The early followers of Jesus, including the 12 apostles who walked with Jesus, but remember, Paul was an apostle too, who came face to face with Jesus, are simply trying to recount and explain, like this show is trying to do, what the way of Jesus is all about. And so, no, I think it would be unfair to call um, Christians Paulists just because so much of his writings and letters have been informative to us in the faith. But I would also challenge, I think, the rare Christian out there who puts Paul above Jesus to question that. I find the opposite to be true, though. I find a lot of people who actually dislike Paul mm-hmm. um, and uh, for a variety of reasons of things that they um, come across in his writings. So with yeah. that being said, you uh, with you mentioned this show kind of trying to do the same, similar things, right? So if that was the case, it who would you replace us with from from Bible from the Bible, like to be able to hear that podcast, right? Okay, I Paul, thought I was following you and I lost you there. Okay, Steve. so yeah. let's say you're gone, Paul's in. Now who uh, who else who would from you place? the Bible yes. would be on this podcast? You know it would be the fun podcast, and I'm going to go New Testament on this first. <laughs> you either want Peter and Paul together, or you want like like Paul and Silas together. And the real and the reason why is because there was tension between them. Like like take Peter and Paul, and, and they walked together, they blessed each other, and they lifted each other up. But but they had a lot of face to face disagreements. They called each other out. You know, you could read Paul laying smack down in Galatians, Galatians <laughs> two on Peter. Yeah. You know, likewise, you come around to Peter's letter, like in Second Peter, where he's like, "Yeah, that Paul guy. You know, he's got a lot of edifying things, but the brother's hard to understand." You know, I mean, there's these little digs <laughs> kind of out there. Yeah. <laughs> you know, happening. You got the most writing, probably because he had the most to say. Yeah, or I can tell a, you who I wouldn't have. have to yeah, who wouldn't you have? Job. No, you wouldn't want Job. He's such a Debbie Downer. <laughs> like, come on, you know, like. Get over it already. <laughs> Just move on. I lost my wife. Yeah. Well, sorry. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> anyway. Yeah. Hope she believes. What happened with the Husker game? Yeah. <laughs> uh, um, let's see here. Some of these still kind of relate. Um, a Christian is one who follows the teachings of Jesus. Jesus didn't come to change the law, but uphold it. Why then do Christians not follow the Jewish practices? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Let's, let's kind of restate that one more time. Christians are followers of Jesus, right? Mm-hmm. And Jesus himself says in Matthew chapter 5 that he did not come to abolish the law, but rather to fulfill it. You said uphold it, but I'm going to use the, you know, more accurate term there. He's come to fulfill it. So why don't we then likewise 
practice the Jewish law. Of course, the law that Jesus has come to fulfill is referring to the Mosaic law that you can find in the Old Testament. It basically kicks into gear around Exodus chapter 20. It carries on through really uh, about Numbers 9 or chapter 10, give or take. And then, of course, Deuteronomy fills it out. And you'll find other uh, things building upon it, like the prophets and things like that explaining it as well, right? Kind of like Paul would explain the teachings of Jesus, the prophets would kind of flush out Moses teaching more. So the reason that we don't continue to practice, or, or, or let me rephrase it, insist that one has to practice, because if you want to practice it, practice it to the degree that you can practice it. I mean, if you don't want to wear clothing, clothing woven of two different kinds of material, fine. If you want to be circumcised, fine, right? Um, you can't really do sacrifices anymore because the temple doesn't exist anymore. And, and that would be kind of an abrogation regardless. But there's many things in the mosaic practice that if you want to continue to do are still very, um, can I use the liturgical phrase, good, right, and salutary, yeah. right? And that, that a lot of us would be better off from. By the way, there's a, a, a great book, and I forgot the author's name. It's called The Year of Living Biblically. And it was written by, I believe, a, a secular Jew. But what he tried to do for one year was live the Old Testament law, and then the New Testament for about three or four months afterwards. Fascinating read. Fascinating read about what what it was like. A.J. Jacobs. Thank you, A.J. Jacobs. Yeah, yeah, great read, and I'd highly recommend Mm. it. But needless to say, it goes back to this word, fulfill. Jesus fulfilled the law. We no longer have to practice the law because it has been fulfilled. Let Let me rephrase this by analogy. I've graduated from college, And I have a diploma that literally says on it that I have fulfilled the requirements for graduation. It would be kind of silly for me to think that I have to go back to college to continue to earn or merit credit, right? To get something I already have. Jesus has fulfilled the program. He has upheld the law and he imputes that on us. That righteousness that he lived, he imputes that on us. This doesn't mean that we still can't sin, and this still doesn't mean that God doesn't want us to live a godly life. He, of course, does. But the way that Paul will describe the law in Genesis, or rather Galatians chapter 3 and 4, is that it was a tutor or a teacher, all right? And before we were of age, it was there to guide us in the way of God. But now that the new age of God has broken in through Christ and the law has been fulfilled, it would be goofy even sacrilegious maybe, to go back to those former practices as though we needed to do those to be in relationship with God, right? Now what we do is go to Christ because that's where the fulfillment and righteousness of the law is found. And then through the spirit that he gives us, we live a new and godly life. Yeah, great question. What is replacing the old law? If that's no longer necessary or supposed to follow it, what's the... I guess New Testament equivalent of that, if you will. Yeah, and this is how or Galatians Second will put Testament. It. As <laughs> thank you. Put it. Yeah, yes. thank you. All right. Here's how. Uh, here's how Galatians would put it: the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. In fact, Paul will go so far as to say, and I'm going to read this word for word. I believe it's Galatians five verse sixteen, but I'm just going to open. Give me one second, and uh, I'm going to read about seven or eight verses here. Just stick with me. He says, so I say, this is 5 or 16, walk by the spirit and you'll not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. For the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the spirit and the spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. They are in conflict with each other so that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. You don't need the law if you've got the spirit of God in your life because what the spirit of God does is he produces what Paul will call fruit. The fruit of the spirit are this, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. If you practice those nine things, if you fully live those nine things, I don't have to give you rules. God does not have to give you rules about how to treat your neighbor or live because it will inevitably manifest from that spirit-filled life. Yeah. Now, none of us live the fully spirit-filled life. 
And so the law continues to be there to guide us, to correct us, to remind us. It continues to serve as, as, as a baseline because let's face it, our hearts are hard and we resist the spirit and, and we deafen his voice, you know, we, we grow deaf to his voice. So we still kind of use that to help figure out what love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control looks like in practice. But nonetheless, Paul says, you know, against these things, there's no law. You don't need it. But I also think too, like, you know, when you're not practicing those things. Often. Yeah. Often I mean, at least. Okay. If it's not on your radar and you happen to overlook something or you have a blind spot, you know, that you're not there, but intentionality, I think with all of those things, I think, you know, what, if you, if you're not, um, I think, you know, when you do something wrong. Yeah. And I think we all have that like pang of conscience. I, I'm only qualifying it, Steve, because I think that we can, to use the biblical metaphor, callous our hearts. Mm-hmm. And the very point sure. of it, like I got yeah. calluses on my hands yep. and that means they're not sensitive anymore. Yep. I don't feel it anymore. Yep. And I think people have, have so deadened certain sins in their life mm-hmm. that it doesn't even bother them yeah. anymore. Yeah. yeah. Could you imagine if we were, and I think I've mentioned this in maybe our, one of our staff meetings or, or not, maybe as you and I and Glenn or something, but you imagine if we still had to do burnt offerings? Jeez. We, you, you would be doing those like every hour on the hour because I, you know, I would go and I would, you know, do whatever burnt offering I'm going to do. I'd probably have my knife or whatever, you know, and I'm sacrificing whatever, throw it on. And you may stub your toe, you may cut yourself, and then you curse. And you're like, dang it, I got to go get another sheep. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm constantly doing these things. I'm like, man, I would, and knowing me, like, I know how I operate. So I would All right. be constantly doing those. <laughs> Let me twist it on you, though, a little bit here yeah. and say what I think might be the appeal of that way. First of all, those priests had to be ripped because they were basically butchers. You're right. I mean, day oh, and yeah. night, they're just hauling hundreds and hundreds of pounds of sides of meat and wrestling animals and slitting. I mean, that is a dirty. You brought your kids to church in that era. Oh my gosh, that was a horrific experience, yeah. you know? We'll go don't, to a small don't wear your Sunday best to that, because you're going to get blown yeah. out. <laughs> but with exception of the whole burnt offering, most of the offerings, the community would eat. Uh, and so, it was basically a never-ending barbecue. Which, that sounds, you know, that would be kind of nice. nice. And this is what Jesus reinterprets and reapplies with his own sacrifice, because if Jesus says, well, I'm the Lamb of God, right? And he gives himself as the perfect sacrifice— and the Eucharist or the Lord's Supper is eating his body and blood. This is really an extension of those Old Testament sacrifices reinterpreted yeah. in many ways where what Christians, and, and, and <laughs> I love this, um, Jude in the New Testament will call them love feasts. Oh, wow. You know, like like I think of communion today and it, 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 it's, so, it, it's so just devolved yeah. from yeah. what it's supposed to be. It's like this this Mick drive through, eat your one calorie styrofoam cracker. And you're like little, like it's not even a Dixie cup of wine. I mean, that would be generous as though this is sharing a meal together, a communal meal, but they called them love feasts. Paul actually had to warn the Corinthian church that like, cause some of them were getting drunk at these things going, I'm glad you're enjoying the party, but you're kind of missing the right the yeah. point. I'm just here but for the, fact the meat. That, that was their standard practice was to kind of share a meal. And yeah. You know, when Acts 2 talks about how the believers would gather together daily at the temple courts and break bread in their homes, and they would share this meal together, and they would, have, they would call it a love feast. Um, well, how, how much of that is missed in the Christian community today where, where the communal Christian experience has been devolved all the way to spectating a performance on Sunday morning mm-hmm. from your priest or pastor or band or organist or choir, or I don't care what it is. Yep as opposed to participating in something and sharing something together, namely Christ's body and blood coming through the context of meal and community. Right. And don't you have to say love feast, like, like in a voice like Barry White, love feast, love. <laughs> you know, so you give it, us your best Barry White, you know, here guys at home. And uh, when did it change from love feast to potluck? Yeah. Yeah. yeah right. I feel like that's kind of where we end yeah, up. No doubt. No doubt. <laughs> potluck. So the, the tater tot hot <laughs> yeah. dish or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> Can you see someone at the casserole dish breaking the tater tots broken <laughs> for you? But there was and never wine. At, there was never wine at the potlucks. <laughs> we really no. do need to recreate that though. Sometime, like annually, recreate like a week long love feast. <laughs> see, you two have gotten gypped in this at Fellowship of Faith because for for years at FOF, going up to COVID, this is what we did on Monday Thursday, mm-hmm. where we brought yeah. in the full meals of bread. We brought in tables instead of rows. We spent 40 minutes together just sharing and eating and drinking with carafes of wine and the grapes and, you know, things like that as well. And, and, and I swear, it's probably one of the most looked forward to 
things and FOF's litany, if I could put it that way. Um, and every year we kind of walk away from that going, this is a lot of work, but why aren't we doing this every week? Yeah. Yeah. We had one, uh, it was the Seder meal. Yeah. But yeah. it was super lame. Oh, it was. It's too bad. <laughs> yeah. It's too bad. How come? Like, it was a paper plate. You had these little tiny, you know, pieces or elements of the Seder meal. But you're not doing it. You're not doing it. Yeah. You know, it yeah. was just like. there. And the power is in the experience. Yes. Of it. I mean, certainly in, in the Eucharist, the power is in God's grace coming through. I'm not denying that to our yeah. overly sensitive listeners here today. Right. But I mean, but but, but there's no such power in the, the shared experience of that. And when we just try to boil it down to its, its, its elements and miss the, the full. Yeah. And the worst moment yeah. is when you get the wafer and you put it in your mouth and then they run out of wine and you're just sitting there choking, choking there. on the, yeah, it, it sucks yep. all the moisture out of your mouth. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Dennis should yeah. start using them, you know, they should. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. all right. What else we got? Uh, let's see here. A lot of these seem to relate because I think they've come in in the last couple of weeks. Um, yeah, relate or doesn't all, relate. All let's, let's, let's do the potpourri of it, right? Yeah. The potluck of it. Uh, is there any good. any sin worse than another? Is there any sin worse than another? I believe there is. And the reason I believe there is, is because when you look in the Bible, there will be times when God will seem to give extra special attention to certain sins, that certain ones seem to tick him off more than others. Now, the extra special attention could simply be because these were the issues that that particular community of, of believers or Israel or New Testament were facing. And, and, and I'll allow that and allow some challenge on that. But there does nonetheless seem to be certain ones that God comes around a back, back to again and again and again as being like high watermark ones that are just mm. – and, and one of them is the most socially acceptable one, and it's pride. Mm. You know, there, there, there is a lot of harsh things that God has to say about prideful people and a lot of very stern warnings that Jesus gives to people who are proud in their own eyes, right? Even to the point of the loss of salvation and, 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 and or becoming the least in the kingdom and things like that. So, so that's one. Idolatry is certainly up there. It's almost like there's certain sins that I think are common denominator sins that a lot of like activities spring out of that he addresses. But what I think the danger of, of, of this discussion might be is to then use that to justify certain sins as not being that big a deal. Mm -hmm. Every sin is a big deal. Jesus had to die for every sin. Every sin is damnable. If I can put it that way, every sin put another way deserves God's judgment and retribution, right? That is what we justly have coming to us for our sin. So rather than trying to maybe parse, you know, on a scale of one to 10 or maybe one to a hundred or whatever it is, which are the really bad ones and the not so severe, just really take a hard, honest look at the sins that you struggle with in your life and ask God for help in that. Seek to fill your life with things of him rather than what draws you into those. Repent of them when you fall. You know that God's grace is going to be not only sufficient, but enough to change, renew, and transform you in the process. Yeah. And that none of those are unforgivable. No such thing as an unforgivable even if, even sin. If it seems, yeah. Oh, yeah. this is the worst of the worst that God talks about the, the, in the worst way or makes him the most upset. Absolutely. It's not unforgivable. Absolutely. And, and to our more astute listener, I know they might come back at me with the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. I'm not going to open the, the, the conversation <laughs> really on that minutes. one in this show. <laughs> um, but no, no, where sin increases, grace increases all the more. God's grace and love is big enough to cover and address and heal and forgive any, any sin. That we one minute. Do. We got one minute. Kent, what's a, what's a quick question you've got for us? Speed round. Yeah. Um, Put you on the spot. <laughs> I, I didn't have anything prepared, but thank you for that. <laughs> no problem. No problem. <laughs> the, the, well, uh, the, the interesting thing you said uh, this, this week and, and last week on the show was we can't impress God. And but we talk about Judgment Day, and do you really think that it's going to be like a court where we go up there and he's like, "Hey," and you're like, "Oh, sorry, I did that," uh, or I mean, God, I like the way you put it. I can't wrap my mind around it. So is it just like I'm getting on an escalator up or down, mm. and that's the judgment? 
you know, the best we have to go on is Jesus teaching on what this is going to look like. I encourage our listeners to read things like Matthew 24, Matthew 25, um, you know, Revelation. But of course, I mean, these are all metaphors at some level, right? Even God as judge is taking a human conception of a role um, by which to understand what he's going to do. So do I think it's going to look like a courtroom? No, I don't think it's going to look like a courtroom, but I find that the metaphor is helpful to kind of create a, a mental image or picture of maybe what to expect and yeah, go from there. Well, hey, big shout out to all our listeners today. Thank you for tuning in. Yeah. We do this podcast every Wednesday at 12.30 p.m. You can catch us on 21.6 The Net or on the Fellowship of Faith Facebook page. Hey, come visit us at fellowshipoffaith.org. Our church is located in McHenry County. But as always, we invite your questions in on anything you've got. No question is off limits on God, life, theology, the Bible. You can text them in to 815-314-0363. If we did not get to your question today, it is in the inbox. It is coming. We look forward to catching you next time. God bless, and uh, we'll see you later. 